All right, good morning. Hi, Momin. Sure. Um, it's a pleasure to be back here with all of you at Resonate. Um, thanks, Omid, for the invitation. It is really an honor. I'm so excited to be amongst all of you. Um, this morning, I want to start with a story um, that I heard recently, and it really does connect into the message that we'll be walking through. Um, at the end of the 19th century, uh, Africa opened up their trade market. So every organization from Western Europe came in because they wanted to see, is there a place for us to sell our products there? Every major shoe manufacturer from England set reps in and saying, let us know, can we sell our shoes here? Is there a market? Every rep went in and they came back with the same report. The people in Africa do not wear shoes. They're barefoot. There's absolutely no market for our product. Every rep came back, same report, same report, same report, except for one. And it was a rep from a shoe company called Bata Shoes. The rep goes in, he sees, he comes back and gives the same report. The people in Africa do not wear shoes, they're barefoot. There is tremendous opportunity for us. There is a market for our product. And to this day, Bata Shoes is one of the largest manufacturers of shoes in Africa and India and Western Europe, servicing over a million clients a day. People went in, they saw the exact same thing, they gave the same report, and yet they came to a very different conclusion on what that meant. This morning, we're going to be looking at a story from the book of Numbers. It's a story where, where God sends spies into the promised land to go, to taste, to see what God had for them. And all the spies come back, and they see the same thing, but they came to a very different conclusion on what that meant. And so before we begin our journey, or I guess end our journey in the book of Numbers, I actually want to start us much, much earlier and kind of help frame the reality of what it meant that God was giving this nation the promised land and to kind of help our understanding on what that really even meant and the significance of that moment. So we're going to start in the book of Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to warn you, we're going to be bouncing around scripture a little bit today. Uh, if you have a Bible, feel free to be there. Some of the verses will be on the screen, but not all of them because I didn't want to break Alex in making every single slide for me. Um, but we'll start in Genesis chapter 12. I should probably get to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 12, we see God call a man named Abram. He says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. God gives this powerful promise to this man named Abram. There's nothing special about Abram besides that God knew that he had a heart that would be obedient. He tells Abram to leave everything he's known, everything he's ever had, the life that was his, the home that was his father's and great-grandfather's, and to leave that place because God was going to do something great through him. Not make him a great family, but to make him a great nation. And that nation would actually be a blessing to the entire world. And so Abram goes. He leaves everything he's known. He starts walking forward. And some time goes by, and Abraham starts just wrestling with the reality of all of this. How am I going to become a great nation? What does this even mean and look like? And so in Genesis 15, he kind of goes to God and starts pushing on God a little bit. He's not challenging God. He's not doubting God, but he's just trying to get some ideas or some answers. God, help me understand this. I'm obedient. I'm in. I'm for this. But I need a little more clarification because there's two issues Abram was having. One is he didn't have any children. 
See, to be a great nation, you need to have a big family lion. And Abram was like, I'm struggling with infertility. My wife and I for decades and decades have not been able to have kids. We don't have a kid, let alone a nation of children and grandchildren. And the second is we don't have a land of our own because you just had me leave my father's land. I left the place that I knew, and now I'm wandering forward. So he goes to God and says, God, help me understand. Give me a picture and a vision for what this looks like. In Genesis chapter 15, we see God go to Abram. And he has Abram go outside. And he says, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Look up, Abram. Try to count all the stars you can see. This is how great your nation is going to be. You will have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, on and on and on. You can't even count the number of stars. That's how big this nation is going to be. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, which was a land that he was living in, his father's land. He goes, I am the Lord who brought you out of that land to give you this land, to take possession of it. He's saying, Abram, look around. This is the place. This is how many children you're going to have. This is how big your nation is going to be. And this is the land that you're going to have. And then God does an incredible thing. He makes a covenant with Abram. And let me explain kind of what that looks like in back in these days. See, covenant was more significant than a promise. We know this. Promises are easily made. They're easily broken. I can promise them I'm going to meet them for lunch at noon. I can be late. I can bail and cancel lunch. I cannot send that email I told them to send. Promises are easy to make, easy to break, and often don't have a lot of consequences. But a covenant, covenant had a lot of weight to it. And there's two pieces to a covenant. Covenants were cause and effect. If I do this, then Scotty, you're going to do that. I'll make lunch, you bring dessert. If I don't make lunch, don't give me dessert. But if I make lunch, you have to bring me dessert, right? We both have a part to play in this. Covenant was cause and effect. And covenants had deep consequences to them. And what the people would do back in this time was that if we made a covenant, what Scotty and I would do is that we would get some animals. This is going to be weird. Just, just follow along with me. We would cut those animals in half. We would spread them apart. And then Scotty and I would each walk in between them. And what we are saying in that moment is let what happened to this animal happen to me if I break my end of this bargain. That was the weight and the significance of a covenant. And so what we're about to see in Genesis 15 is that the God of the universe makes a covenant with Abram saying, I am promising you this, that if you remain faithful and obedient to me, you will be a great nation and you will have a land of your own. And yet in the midst of this covenant that God makes, we see something interesting happen. God tells Abram to bring the animals. They bring the animals. They divide them in half. They separate them out. And what should happen, right, is now Abram should walk through and God should walk through. But as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. So Abram, God, God puts Abram to sleep. And in the midst of this deep sleep, God's voice comes to Abram. and goes, Abram, I want you to hear this. Listen to this in the midst of this sleep that you're in. Know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. So God's saying, my promises are true. You will be a great nation. You will have a great land. But the journey isn't going to be necessarily easy. That this is going to be a path for you. That this is going to be difficult at times, but remain faithful and trust in me. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. 
and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Hittites, the Perizzites, Canaanites, Amorites, Jebusites, on and on and on. So God makes his covenant with Abram, but Abram does not walk through. God instead puts him to sleep. Why? Because there was no way Abram's going to be able to hold up his end of the bargain. That if Abram lost faith even a little bit, if he disobeyed God even once, he would have broken that promise that he would have made to God. And what would have happened? Abram would be dead, no nation, no land. And see, God knew that we are imperfect. God knows that there's no way we can always be perfect, that we're going to lose faith at times, that we're going to be disobedient at times. Every day, there's going to be moments of disobedience. So God says, I'm making this covenant to you. I'm making this promise to you. But it's not dependent on anything you can do. No, this promise is wholly dependent on me. That this is because of my goodness and love for you that I'm going to confirm this promise. It has nothing to do with your perfection or you doing the right thing or you being able to earn this. This is a gift from me. So I'm passing through by myself, Abram, while you sleep. Because this is about me and not about you. This is incredible foreshadowing of what Christ would do on the cross, right? That this is all on me. This has nothing to do with you. This is because of my goodness and love for you. And so God makes his promise to Abram in Genesis 12. He makes his covenant in Genesis 15 saying, I'm going to do this. And then the story moves forward to the book of Exodus. And what happens is exactly what God said would happen. The people are enslaved. They're in Egypt. They're being mistreated. They're being oppressed. And people are crying out for God. I can almost guarantee you that every single person there, every Israelite would have known the promise that was made to Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, right? Because that was a great promise, and this nation had begun to form. They would have all remembered that promise that we should have a land of our own. But I wonder how many remember that other little part that God said, that there is going to be a season where you're going to be enslaved, that you're going to be in a land that's not your own. But I will rescue you out of that. I wonder how many of them remembered that. Because years and years and decades and decades and centuries had gone on, and these people are like, wow, where is this nation? In fact, I don't feel like I'm moving any closer to it. This feels much further apart. Because now we're enslaved, and now we're in Egypt. Did God forget his promise to us? Does God care? Is God listening? Do we matter? Did he move on? Did he choose somebody else? And in the midst of all of this, as the people are crying out to God, God comes to Moses to remind Moses and the people, like, I haven't gone anywhere. I'm here. I've been with you through this season. And now, Moses, I need you to go and to begin the process of rescuing my children and bring them to the promised land. Genesis chapter, or Exodus chapter 3. God appears to Moses and says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of this land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. He's just describing what this place is. This wasn't arbitrary. 
This would be like saying, instead of saying, oh, I'm going to give you Southern California. No, I'm going to give you the Palisades and Santa Monica and Venice and Westchester and Playa and Marina. God was being specific. He did this also in Genesis 15. Like, this was a place I'm going to give you. So he names the area. He names the people who are going to be there. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I've seen the way the Egyptians are pressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And so we see this nation on the move now. And they're making their way into the promised land. And the thing I want to highlight in this section that's so important for us to remember as the people and children of God is that I can assume for sure that there were people wondering, why did this take so long? You told Abram in Genesis 15, why didn't we immediately get our land? Why didn't we have to go through this process? And what God reminds the people later in Exodus is that there is always a purpose to the waiting. That there is always a purpose to the waiting for God. Now, God doesn't desire us as his children to suffer. He didn't desire for them to become enslaved in Egypt for all those years. But God says, I can use that time if you allow me to. And he tells them later in the book of Exodus why. He says, the reason this journey was so long for you is so that you would remember. So that you would remember. I'm about to give you this land. I'm about to give you everything I have promised you. A land flowing with milk and honey. A land that's going to be your own. That you're going to be this great nation. And the purpose of that is so that you'd be a blessing to the world. But I need you to remember. Remember what it was like when you didn't have a land of your own. Remember what it was like when you were in Egypt. And instead of being welcomed and cared for as strangers and aliens in that place, you were instead oppressed and enslaved. I need you to remember that. Because when you have a land of your own, I want you to be the type of people that love and treat strangers and aliens who come into your land the way in which you wished you were treated. I want you to show them the love and care and compassion you wish you would have received in Egypt to the people who come. See, there's a purpose in that waiting so that you would remember. I was trying to form you during this time. I was trying to shape you during this time. I was trying to help you become the type of people that would love and welcome others so that you could be the blessing of the world I'm asking you to be. Now, that doesn't make the waiting any easier, right? The waiting is hard. The waiting is difficult in our life. But God says, will you allow me to use that waiting? Because I'm trying to shape you and form you so that you can be a blessing. And so the people make their way through the desert. And in the book of Numbers, in our text this morning, we see them, they're standing on the precipice. They're on the edge. They're waiting to go into the promised land. God says, this is it. This is the area I've had for you. And there are a million people that have been on this journey. A million people traveling through the desert now standing on the edge. And suddenly they hesitate. And they're like, God, instead of all of us going forward, why don't we send 12 people first? Why don't we send people out to explore and take a look and, and see what's really going on there? So the people started doubting and having fear about what God was doing. And so God acquiesces. He says, okay. If you want to send 12 spies out, go. If you want to pop the hood and kick the tires and take a trust drive, sure, go do that. This is your car. This is the place that I promised you. This is good. And so go for it. And so in the book of Numbers chapter 13, where we'll spend kind of the rest of our time this morning, we see God commanding Moses to, to allow them to send the spies. I'm going to actually pick it up in verse 1 and kind of weave down a little bit. The Lord says to Moses, 
Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. I'm giving them this land. So go explore it if you need to explore it. From each ancestral tribe, send one of the Israelites. So 12 spies go in, one from every tribe. And the purpose of this was so they would taste and see the goodness of God. This was meant to invigorate them, to encourage them. They've had a long journey. Taste and see the goodness of what's in front of you. See the reality of what I am promising you, and then go forward and take it. And so Moses gives them some instructions. He says, see what the land is like, whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How's the soil? Is it fertile or good? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. So they went and explored the land. They spent 40 days exploring the land, looking at all of it, seeing everything that was there. They wanted to bring back some of the fruit, so actually two men had to grab this long pole, and they kept dumping all the grapes on top of them because there was so much fruit. Remember, during this time, all they were eating was manna, this bread from heaven, and suddenly there's all these grapes and frigs, figs and fruit there. And so after 40 days, they come back, and they go before the whole assembly to share what they had seen, these 12 spies. Verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. They reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and their cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Malachites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. And then Caleb signs the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. The spies go there, they all see the same thing, and they come back to give this report. Yes, there's people in this land. Yes, God said from Genesis 15, there are going to be people in this land. Yes, he repeated in Exodus 3. Yes, there's people in this land. But it's flowing with milk and honey. This is a land that's good. This is your land. God's like, this, this is the place that I've been promising you from the very beginning. This is a journey that you've been on for centuries and centuries to get to this place. And they start giving this report back, but suddenly 10 of the spies start kind of turning that corner, right? Have you ever been in a meeting where you guys all start talking and you can tell somebody's getting a little bit negative, like the butt is coming? And these people start doing that. They're like, gosh, the people are big there. The people are strong. There's a lot of people there. And Caleb's hearing this going, wait, 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 wait. Are we not on the same page? This is the spot. This is where God wants us. So Caleb silences them saying, hey, 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 yes, this is all true. There's people there, but let's go take the land. This is exactly what God has for us. And the people respond back to Caleb. And watch how this report now starts getting exaggerated by the other ten. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said the land we explored devours things living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak. And we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Now there's giants in the land suddenly. 
and we look like grasshoppers. That's how small we are compared to them. There's no way we can take this land. And Caleb responds back again in Numbers chapter 14. He said, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. And this went back and forth and back and forth from the people. Twelve spies go in. They see the exact same thing. They come back with the same report. And yet they had two very different conclusions on what this meant for them moving forward. See, for 10 of the spies, they saw giants. I mean, they exaggerated, but we'll just call them giants, right? They saw giants in the land. And the minute they saw the giants, they stopped seeing God. They become fearful. They became paralyzed. And Caleb gives that halftime speech. We will devour them. Their protection is gone. You would think from that moment it would rally the troops. You know what it did instead? The people started talking about stoning Caleb to death to shut him up and to actually kill Moses and Aaron and go back to Egypt to go back to slavery. That was their response. Like, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going to go into the promised land. In fact, we'd rather turn and go back to our old lives and go back to being enslaved because that was familiar. That was comfortable. That was predictable. This is unknown. This is scary. And it'd be so easy this morning for us just to rag on the 10, right? Like, that's the whole message. Don't be the 10, be the two. Sure. But how about the reality of what those 10 have lived through? They've been enslaved for generations. Their families had died in slavery. They've been rescued out. It wasn't an easy road. They've been dependent on this bread from heaven from God. And they get to the point where they're standing on the precipice, about to go into the promised land. And I wondered... If they didn't think, gosh, shouldn't this be a little bit easier? Shouldn't this just be easier? After everything we've been through, after everything we've suffered, after this journey that we've been on, and we're going and seeing this land, and there's all these people here that we're going to have to defeat. Shouldn't this just be easier for us? So the 10 got paralyzed when they saw the giants. And Joshua and Caleb saw the same thing, and instead of turning with fear, they had expectant faith. They trusted in God. They didn't come back with a playbook. They didn't come back and say, okay, here's how we're going to defeat it. Here's the way. Here's the trenches we're going to dig. None of that. They didn't know. They didn't have the answer. All they knew is this is where God's been leading us. This is what's next. So let's take the next step of obedience forward and see what God will do. Twelve people went in. They saw the same thing, gave the same report, And it came back with two very different conclusions on what it means. And so this morning, as we kind of come to our close, as we land the plane, I want to just highlight a couple of things that I think are so significant for us as individuals and for us as a community of people here this morning. The first is this idea of waiting. That there are places in our life, there are things in our life specifically, where we need to be at peace with the waiting that God is trying to do something in the midst of the waiting. It doesn't make it easier. Waiting is hard. Waiting can be painful. Waiting can involve suffering. And I wonder if we look back at our lives, my, my prayer, my hope is for you that you can even see threads in your life where you were waiting and you can see what God was doing through that. And I guarantee you there's areas in your life where you're looking back at the waiting and you have no idea what God is doing. Why am I suffering? Why is this taking so long? 
So the first thing, or where are those areas of our life where we're just waiting? Waiting on God, waiting for what's next, and have to be at peace in the midst of the waiting. Believing that he is good, that he's trying to shape us and form us in the midst of this waiting. And the second thing is, where are those areas in our life where we're standing on the precipice? When we're looking out forward and towards what is next, and we're on the edge and we're seeing these giants, and it's starting to paralyze us a little bit. See, what I love about that story is it wasn't that Joshua and Caleb ignored the people there, right? They weren't naive. Because here's what can happen when we see giants in our lives. The two extremes are we can, one, we can maximize the giants, right? They can become these big obstacles that we can't overcome. And when we maximize giants, we make God very small. Because we start believing that the God of the universe, the God that created the heavens and the earth, the God that created everything that we see out the door here, that that God is not big enough for the obstacles in my way. So we can maximize the giants and make God very small. The other thing we can do is we can minimize the giants, right? That we can be the kind of people that say, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's all good, it's all good, don't worry about it. And we actually dismiss giants in our life. And we can make God very small because we don't need God. If nothing's ever a big deal, and if this is not real, and it's all okay, and I can just keep minimizing and minimizing and ignoring the reality of what's in front of me. See, the call of God forward in our life is not immune to obstacles. It's not immune to giants. Joshua and Caleb saw the giants clearly. God is saying, I want you to have a clear view of what's in front of you. I don't want you to be naive. Yes, this might be hard. Yes, this might be difficult. Have a clear view of what's in front of you, but also have a clear view of me that this is what I'm calling you into. See, where are the areas in our life where we are standing on the precipice, we're seeing the giants in front of us, and we're starting to take our eyes off of God? Where is that for us individually? And where is that for us as a community, for Resonate? Like, Resonate, where is the places in your life here as a community where God is saying, have peace in the waiting, have peace in the process? And where is the area he is saying, resonate, you're on the precipice, take that step, move forward, trust in my plans. You don't have the playbook yet, you don't have all the answers, but you're looking out into something that I have for you. And this morning, we have the opportunity to respond. And one of those opportunities we have for us this morning is through communion. Communion is this beautiful reminder that we get from Genesis chapter 15, right? that the God of the universe has made this covenant, this promise to us, and saying this promise has nothing to do with you, but has everything to do with me. That when Jesus gathered his disciples in the upper room, on that last night he would be with them. He grabbed that bread and broke it and said, this bread is going to represent my body and it's going to be broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is going to represent my blood that's going to be spilled for you on the cross. Now, in that moment, those disciples would have no idea what Jesus was talking about, but soon they would learn when they saw him up on that cross that God said, I want you to gather together as a community and participate in this moment as a way to remember my promises to you, to remember my goodness, to remember my love, to remember that this has nothing to do with you, but this is a gift from me. All you have to do is have faith and believe because I am good and because I love you. See, one of the ways we can respond this morning if we choose to, and all are welcome at the communion table, is to take this meal as a reminder that God has gone ahead 
that God is going before, that God has seen the land, he's seen the giants, he knows what's ahead of us, and is asking us to trust in him. So we stand as I pray over us, and then we can continue in worship. Father, this morning we come to you as a community humbled that the God of the universe would even see us or notice us or care about us. And not only do you notice us and see us and care about us, Father, you would send your son onto this earth to live amongst us, to show us what your love and care and compassion and forgiveness and goodness looks like, that would go to the cross for us so we can be free from sin and live in eternity with you. Father, this morning, I pray that we are just overwhelmed by your goodness. God, we know the giants are real. We know there's obstacles in front of us. We know there are things that are difficult and hard and painful, Lord. But Father, I pray that even in the midst of that, we would never take our eyes off of you, that we would see that you are good, that you are strong, and that you love us. Father, let our worship, let our response be an affirmation of that in our hearts, God. Give us the strength to believe in those truths. Father, we love you. And we pray this all in your name. Amen.